Chapter Four of Laba by Jorical Heismans, translated by Keen Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How is Gilles de Ray progressing? I have finished the first part of his life, making just the briefest possible mention of his virtues and achievements, which are of no interest," remarked Des Hermies. Evidently, since the name of Gilles de Ray would have perished four centuries ago, but for the enormities of vice which it symbolizes i am coming to the crimes now the great difficulty you see is to explain how this man who was a brave captain and a good christian all of a sudden became a sacrilegious sadist and a coward metamorphosed overnight as it were worse as if at a touch of a fairy's wand or of a playwright's pen that is what mystifies his biographers of course untraceable influences must have been at work a long time and there must have been occasional outcropping not mentioned in the chronicles here is a recapitulation of our material gilles de ray was born about fourteen o four on the boundary between brittany and anjou in the chateau de machecoul we know nothing of his childhood his father died about the end of october fourteen fifteen and his mother almost immediately married a sieur d'estouville abandoning her two sons gilles and rené they became the wards of their grandfather jean de craon a man old and ancient and of exceeding great age as the texts say he seems to have allowed his two charges to run wild and then to have got rid of gilles by marrying him to catherine de Thouars, november thirty fourteen twenty gilles is known to have been at the court of the dauphin five years later his contemporaries represent him as a robust active man of striking beauty and rare elegance we have no explicit statement as to the role he played in this court but one can easily imagine what sort of treatment the richest baron in france received at the hands of an impoverished king for at that moment charles the seventh was in extremities he was without money prestige or real authority even the cities along the loire scarcely obeyed him france decimated a few years before by the plague and further depopulated by massacres was in a deplorable situation england rising from the sea like the fabled polyp the kraken had cast her tentacles over brittany normandy l'ile de france part of picardy the entire north the interior as far as orleans and crawling forward left in her wake towns squeezed dry and country exhausted in vain charles clamoured for subsidies invented excuses for exactions and pressed the imposts the paralysed cities and fields abandoned to the wolves could afford no succour remember his very claim to the throne was disputed he became like a blind man going the rounds with a tin cup begging sous his court at chinon was a snarl of intrigue complicated by an occasional murder weary of being hunted more or less out of harm's way behind the loire charles and his partisans finally consoled themselves by flaunting in the face of inevitable disaster the devil-may-care debaucheries of the condemned making the most of the few moments left them forays and loans furnished them with opulent cheer and permitted them to carouse on a grand scale the eternal qui vive and the misfortunes of war were forgotten in the arms of courtesans what more could have been expected of a used-up sleepy-headed king the issue of an infamous mother and a mad father oh whatever you say about charles the seventh pales beside the testimony of the portrait of him in the louvre painted by fouquet that bestial face with the eyes of a small-town ursurer and the sly psalm-singing mouth that butter wouldn't melt in has often arrested me fouquet depicts a debauched priest who has a bad cold and has been drinking sour wine 
yet you can see that this monarch is of the very same type as the more refined less salacious more prudently cruel more obstinate and cunning louis the eleventh his son and successor well charles the seventh was the man who had jean sans peur assassinated and who abandoned jeanne d'arc what more need be said what indeed well gilles de ray who had raised an army at his own expense was certainly welcomed by this court with open arms there is no doubt that he footed the bills for tournaments and banquets that he was vigilantly tapped by the courtiers and that he lent the king staggering sums but in spite of his popularity he never seems to have evaded responsibility and wallowed in debauchery like the king we find gilles shortly afterward defending anjou and men against the english the chronicles say that he was a good and hardy captain but his goodness and hardiness did not prevent him from being borne back by force of numbers the english armies uniting inundated the country and pushing on unchecked invaded the interior the king was ready to flee to the mediterranean provinces and let france go when jeanne d'arc appeared gilles returned to court and was entrusted by charles with the guard and defence of the maid of orleans he followed her everywhere fought at her side even under the walls of paris and was with her at reims the day of the coronation at which time says monstrelet the king rewarded his valour by naming him marshal of france at the age of twenty-five lord dear me interrupted promotion came rapidly in those times but i suppose warriors then weren't the bemedalled time-serving incompetence they are now oh don't be misled the title of marshal of france didn't mean so much in gilles time as it did afterward in the reign of francis i and nothing like what it has come to mean since napoleon what was the conduct of gilles de ray towards jeanne d'arc we have no certain knowledge m valet de viriville without proof accuses him of treachery m l'abbe bossard on the contrary claims and alleges plausible reasons for entertaining the opinion that he was loyal to her and watched over her devotedly what is certain is that gilles soul became saturated with mystical ideas his whole history proves it he was constantly in association with this extraordinary maid whose adventures seemed to attest the possibility of divine intervention in earthly affairs he witnessed the miracle of a peasant girl dominating a court of ruffians and bandits and arousing a cowardly king who was on the point of flight he witnessed the incredible episode of a virgin bringing back to the fold such black rams as la hire Zintreil, Beaumanoir, Chabanne, Dunois, and Gaucourt, and washing their old fleeces whiter than snow. Undoubtedly Gilles also, under her shepherding, docilely cropped the white grass of the gospel, took communion the morning of a battle, and revered Jeanne as a saint. He saw the maid fulfil all her promises. She raised the siege of Orléans, had the king consecrated at Reims, and then declared that her mission was accomplished, and asked as a boon that she be permitted to return home now i should say that as a result of such an association gilles's mysticism began to soar henceforth we have to deal with a man who is half freebooter half monk moreover pardon the interruption but i am not so sure that jeanne d'arc's intervention was a good thing for france why not i will explain you know that the defenders of charles were for the most part mediterranean cutthroats ferocious pillagers execrated by the very people they came to protect the hundred years war in effect was a war of the south against the north england at that epoch had not got over the conquest and was norman in blood language and tradition suppose jeanne d'arc had stayed with her mother and stuck to her knitting 
charles the seventh would have been dispossessed and the war would have come to an end the plantagenets would have reigned over england and france which in primeval times before the channel existed formed one territory occupied by one race as you know thus there would have been a single united and powerful kingdom of the north reaching as far as the province of languedoc and embracing peoples whose tastes instincts and customs were alike on the other hand the coronation of a valois at reims created a heterogeneous and preposterous france separating homogeneous elements uniting the most incompatible nationalities races the most hostile to each other and identifying us inseparably alas with those stained-skinned varnished-eyed munchers of chocolate and raveners of garlic who are not frenchmen at all but spaniards and italians in a word if it hadn't been for jeanne d'arc france would not now belong to that line of histrionic forensic perfidious chatterboxes the precious latin race devil take it durtal raised his eyebrows my my he said laughing your remarks prove to me that you are interested in our own our native land i should never have suspected it of you of course you wouldn't said de hermie relighting his cigarette as has so often been said my own my native land is wherever i happen to feel at home now i don't feel at home except with the people of the north but i interrupted you let's get back to the subject what were you saying i forget oh yes i was saying that the maid had completed her task now we are confronted by a question to which there is seemingly no answer what did gilles do when she was captured how did he feel about her death we cannot tell we know that he was lurking in the vicinity of rouen at the time of the trial but it is too much to conclude from that like certain of his biographies that he was plotting her rescue at any rate after losing track of him completely we find that he has shut himself in his castle of tiffauges he is no longer the rough soldier the uncouth fighting man at the time when the misdeeds are about to begin the artist and man of letters develop in gilles and taking complete possession of him incite him under the impulsion of a perverted mysticism to the most sophisticated of cruelties the most delicate of crimes for he was almost alone in his time this baron de ray in an age when his peers were simple brutes he sought the delicate delirium of art dreamed of a literature soul-searching and profound he even composed a treatise on the art of evoking demons he gloried in the music of the church and would have nothing about his that was not rare and difficult to obtain he was an erudite latinist a brilliant conversationalist a sure and generous friend he possessed a library extraordinary for an epoch when nothing was read but theology and lives of saints we have the description of several of his manuscripts suetonius valerius maximus and an ovid on parchment bound in red leather with vermeil clasp and key these books were his passion he carried them with him when he travelled he had attached to his household a painter named thomas who illuminated them with ornate letters and miniatures and gilles himself painted the enamels which a specialist discovered after an assiduous search set in the gold inwrought bindings gilles's taste in furnishings was elevated and bizarre he revelled in abbatial stuffs voluptuous silks in the sombre gilding of old brocade he liked knowingly spiced foods ardent wines heavy with aromatics he dreamed of unknown gems weird stones uncanny metals he was the desessant of the fifteenth century all this was very expensive less so perhaps than the luxurious court which made tiffauges a place like none other he had a guard of two hundred men knights captains squires pages and all these people had personal attendants who were magnificently equipped at gilles expense 
the luxury of his chapel and collegium was madly extravagant there was in residence at tiffauges a complete metropolitan clergy deans vicars treasurers canons clerks deacons scholasters and choir boys there is an inventory extant of the surplices stoles and amices and the fur choir hats with crowns of squirrel and linings of vere there are countless sacerdotal ornaments we find vermilion altar cloths curtains of emerald silk a cope of velvet crimson and violet with orphes of cloth of gold another of rose damask satin dalmatics for the deacons baldachins figured with hawks and falcons of cypress gold we find plate hammered chalices and ciboria crusted with uncut jewels there are reliquaries among them a silver head of saint honore a mass of sparkling jewelries which an artist installed in the chateau cuts to order and any one who came along was welcome from all corners of france caravans journeyed toward this chateau where the artist the poet the scholar found princely hospitality cordial good fellowship gifts of welcome and largesse at departure already undermined by the demands which the war had made on it his fortune was giving way beneath these expenditures now he began to walk the terrible ways of usury he borrowed of the most unscrupulous bourgeois hypothecated his chateau alienated his lands at times he was reduced to asking advances on his religious ornaments on his jewels on his books i am glad to see that the method of ruining oneself in the middle ages did not differ sensibly from that of our days said de hermie however our ancestors did not have monte carlo the notaries and the bourse and did have sorcery and alchemy a memorial addressed to the king by the heirs of gilles de Ray informs us that this immense fortune was squandered in less than eight years now it's the seigneuries of conforlin chabannes chateau morin lambert ceded to a captain for a ridiculous price now it's the fief of fontaine milon of Anchères, the fortress of saint etienne de mer morte acquired by guillaume le ferron for a song again it's the chateau of blaison and of chemille forfeited to guillaume de la jumeliere who never has to pay a sou but look there's a long list of castellanies and forests salt mines and farmlands said durtal spreading out a great sheet of paper on which he had copied the account of the purchases and sales frightened by his mad course the family of the marshal supplicated the king to intervene and charles the seventh sure as he said of the malgovernance of the sire de Ray, forbade him in grand council by letters dated amboise fourteen thirty six to sell or make over any fortress any chateau any land this order simply hastened the ruin of the interdicted the grand skinflint the master usurer of the time jean v duke of brittany refused to publish the edict in his states but underhandedly notified all those of his subjects who dealt with gilles no one now dared to buy the marshal's domains for fear of incurring the wrath of the king so jean v remained the sole purchaser and fixed the prices you may judge how liberal his prices were that explains gilles hatred of his family who had solicited these letters patent of the king and why as long as he lived he had nothing to do with his wife nor with his daughter whom he consigned to a dungeon at Pouzauges. now to return to the question which i put a while ago how and with what motives gilles quitted the court i think the facts which i have outlined will partially explain it is evident that for quite a while long before the marshal retired to his estates charles had been assailed by the complaints of gilles's wife and other relatives moreover the courtiers must have execrated the young man on account of his riches and luxuries 
and the king the same king who abandoned jeanne d'arc when he considered that she could no longer be useful to him found an occasion to avenge himself on gilles for the favours gilles had done him when the king needed money to finance his debaucheries or to raise troops he had not considered the marshal lavish now that the marshal was ruined the king censured him for his prodigality held him at arm's length and spared him no reproach and no menace we may be sure gilles had no reason to regret leaving this court and another thing is to be taken into consideration he was doubtless sick and tired of the nomadic existence of a soldier he was doubtless impatient to get back to a pacific atmosphere among books moreover he seems to have been completely dominated by the passion for alchemy for which he was ready to abandon all else for it is worth noting that this science which threw him into demonomania when he hoped to stave off inevitable ruin with it he had loved for its own sake when he was rich it was in fact toward the year fourteen twenty six when his coffers bulged with gold that he attempted the great work for the first time we shall find him then bent over his retorts in the chateau de tiforges that is the point to which i have brought my history and now i am about to begin on the series of crimes of magic and sadism but all this said the hermie does not explain how from a man of piety he was suddenly changed into a satanist from a placid scholar into a violator of little children a ripper of boys and girls i have already told you that there are no documents to bind together the two parts of this life so strangely divided but in what i have been narrating you can pick out some of the threads of the duality to be precise this man as i have just had you observe was a true mystic he witnessed the most extraordinary events which history has ever shown association with jeanne d'arc certainly stimulated his desires for the divine now from lofty mysticism to base satanism there is but one step in the beyond all things touch he carried his zeal for prayer into the territory of blasphemy he was guided and controlled by that troop of sacrilegious priests transmuters of metals and evokers of demons by whom he was surrounded at tiforges you think then that the maid of orleans was really responsible for his career of evil to a certain point consider she roused an impetuous soul ready for anything as well for orgies of saintliness as for ecstasies of crime there was no transition between the two phases of his being the moment jeanne was dead he fell into the hands of sorcerers who were the most learned of scoundrels and the most unscrupulous of scholars these men who frequented the chateau de tiforges were fervent latinists marvellous conversationalists possessors of forgotten arcana guardians of world-old secrets gilles was evidently more fitted to live with them than with men like dunois and la hire these magicians whom all the biographers agree to represent wrongly i think as vulgar parasites and base knaves were as i view them the patricians of intellect of the fifteenth century not having found places in the church where they would certainly have accepted no position beneath that of cardinal or pope they could in those troubled times of ignorance but take refuge in the patronage of a great lord like gilles and gilles was indeed the only one at that epoch who was intelligent enough and educated enough to understand them to sum up natural mysticism on one hand and on the other daily association with savants obsessed by satanism the sword of damocles hanging over his head to be conjured away by the will of the devil perhaps an ardent a mad curiosity concerning the forbidden sciences all this explains why little by little as the bonds uniting him to the world of alchemists and sorcerers grow stronger he throws himself into the occult and is swept on by it into the most unthinkable crimes 
then as to being a ripper of children and he didn't immediately become one no gilles did not violate and trucidate little boys until after he became convinced of the vanity of alchemy why he does not differ greatly from the other barons of his times he exceeds them in the magnitude of his debauches in opulence of murders and that's all it's a fact read michelet you will see that the princes of this epoch were redoubtable butchers there was a sire de giac who poisoned his wife put her astride of his horse and rode at breakneck speed for five leagues until she died there was another whose name i have forgotten who collared his father dragged him barefoot through the snow and calmly thrust him into a subterranean prison and left him there until he died and how many others i have tried without success to find whether in battles and forays the marshal committed any serious misdeeds i have discovered nothing except that he had a pronounced taste for the gibbet for he liked to string up all the renegade french whom he surprised in the ranks of the english or in the cities which were not very much devoted to the king we shall find his taste for this kind of torture manifesting itself later on in the chateau de tiffauges now in conclusion add to all these factors a formidable pride a pride which incites him to say during his trial so potent was the star under which i was born that i have done what no one in the world has done nor ever can do and assuredly the marquis de sade is only a timid bourgeois a mediocre fantasist beside him since it is difficult to be a saint said des hermies there is nothing for it but to be a satanist one of the two extremes execration of impotence hatred of the mediocre that perhaps is one of the more indulgent definitions of diabolism perhaps one can take pride in going as far in crime as a saint in virtue and that expresses gilles de ray exactly all the same it's a mean subject to handle it certainly is but happily the documents are abundant satan was terrible to the middle ages and to the modern what do you mean that satanism has come down in a straight unbroken line from that age to this oh no you don't believe that at this very hour the devil is being evoked and the black mass celebrated yes you are sure perfectly you amaze me but man do you know that to witness such things would aid me signally in my work no joking you believe in a contemporary satanistic manifestation you have proofs yes and of them we shall speak later for to-day i am very busy tomorrow evening when we dine with carre don't forget i'll come by for you meanwhile think over the phrase which you applied a moment ago to the magicians if they had entered the church they would not have consented to be anything but cardinals and popes and then just think what kind of a clergy we have nowadays the explanation of satanism is there in great part anyway for without sacrilegious priests there is no mature satanism but what do these priests want everything exclaimed de hermie hmm. like gilles de ray who asked the demon for knowledge power riches all that humanity covets to be deeded to him by a title signed with his own blood end of chapter four